Anybody here ever? This morning, our message is from Psalm 34. Psalm 34, which we'll read in just a minute, opens, reminding us of a time when a warrior was trapped behind enemy lines, if indeed he could be called a warrior. He did not look like a warrior. There was nothing spit and polish about him. He looked dirty and disheveled, but he had just volunteered to serve in the army, and he carried a sword, and in fact, it was a huge sword. It may have been the sword that gave the volunteer away. The sword that the warrior carried was the sword that had belonged to Goliath, the mighty champion of the Philistines who had died in combat some years earlier. And someone then recognized the volunteer. And the soldiers who were gathered around the new volunteer began to whisper among themselves, passing the word that this was not a Philistine, but an Israelite. In fact, this was the very Israelite who had slain Goliath and many, many more Philistines. The warrior's life hung in the balance. There were soldiers around him. He knew he could not escape. What was he to do? And so he switched tactics, and he quickly pretended to be out of his mind. Drool dribbled down his unkempt and dirty beard, and he wandered around the courtyard mumbling to himself and making meaningless marks on the gates. He appeared to have the mind of a beast, and not a man. And the Philistine king Achish, also known as Abimelech, shouted at his aide de camp, look at this man. He is insane. Am I so short of lunatics that you have to bring him in here? Get him out of my house. Get him out of here. And David, for that's who this was, wandered off down the road at a leisurely pace, keeping up the appearance of madness He looked up at the sky and he mumbled to himself and then picked up an insect and meandered down until he was out of sight of the Philistines, whereupon he promptly broke down in tears and laughter and jumping around because of all things he had been recognized and he was still alive. But what was David doing with the Philistines? They were, after all, the mortal enemies of Israel and the God of Israel. David was hiding from his own king, King Saul. Saul was jealous of David and tried to kill him. He chased David out of Jerusalem, and in a very short time, David lost everything. He lost his wife, his family, his home, his country, his friends and mentors, his position, his reputation. Everything was gone. And David ran from King Saul until he could run no more, surviving by his wits and his wiles. Finally, he ran out of strength, and he decided that the best thing that he could do was to cross over to the other side to offer himself to to the Philistines, and now the Philistines had turned him out. It is at this moment that we see David. One of the great things about studying David is that we can sometimes literally read his thoughts. While David was still in the storm, he wrote Psalm 34, which is our text this morning. 
As of the time that David wrote Psalm 34, nothing had changed. He had been far from home, far from his loved ones, without occupation, and he still was. His reputation had been taken. It had not been restored. He was on the run from King Saul, and nothing had changed in that respect either. So Psalm 34, when we read it, reveals the thoughts of a man who gave thanks in the midst of troubles. Of course, this is Thanksgiving weekend, and for many, the holiday season is a time of joy, a time of plenty, a time of celebration, a time for family, but the holiday season can also be difficult. There are expectations of perfect families and material plenty, but the reality can be far different. So we have to ask ourselves, can we give thanks to God in difficult circumstances? In the midst of troubles, David takes refuge in God. In time of trouble, take refuge in the Lord. That is our theme today. So here is our sermon in a sentence. In Psalm 34, David extols God as our refuge and invites us to put our trust in him in the midst of our times of trouble. So let's pray together and we will dive into Psalm 34. Lord, we thank you this morning for these words of David, written almost 3,000 years ago, and yet so applicable for us today as we consider where we can turn in the midst of troubles. We pray, Lord, that we would find refuge in you, our creator and savior. And we pray in your name. Amen. So here are the first several verses of Psalm 34. You notice on the side it says, Psalm 34 of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. David writes, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So several things to see here, some of which we actually do see and some of which we do not see. So we saw those introductory words that this was written when he pretended to be insane. And so David has written this psalm after his narrow escape. And as David reflects on the experience, notice what David did not do, what David did not Say, he did not boast about his own cunning. He did not let us know what a great actor he was to have fooled the Philistines. He didn't brag about his good luck. No, David thanks God. He says that he will extol the Lord. He will praise God and he will glory in the Lord. And he wants us to join him. He calls for our response. So in those same verses, note that in verse 2, David writes this psalm to people who are afflicted. Do you see that? Let the afflicted hear. So if you've come this morning and you're one of those people who is in the midst of troubles, he has written this psalm for you. But he doesn't want you to remain downcast. He wants you to hear David's story and rejoice. He wants us to glorify the Lord and exalt his name together. 
So here is our first lesson from Psalm 34, a simple one, but nevertheless worthy of our attention. David lets us know that every good thing that he has comes from God. Do you follow David? We, do we know that every good thing that we have comes from God? The good in your life may appear to come from your own cleverness, from family connections, perhaps from just dumb luck. But all that is good comes from the open hands of our Heavenly Father. It is a pleasure to be someone, to be with someone who is appreciative of what she has received from God, no matter how simple. And conversely, the ungrateful man casts a pall over his companions no matter where he goes. So give God glory for the day-to-day provision that he offers to you and encourage others to thank God with you. Say with David, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Then in verses 4 through 7, David describes more specifically what God did to deliver him. He gives testimony to a gracious God. He does so in four steps in four verses. So David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So note first that David describes himself as a poor man. You see verse 6, this poor man called. When David says that, he's not talking about his financial condition. At least he, he, he is poor financially, but... Worse than that, he is telling us that he is without resources to take care of his business. He had nothing to his name except fears, we see in verse 4, and troubles. And so it is right, David tells us, to acknowledge when we are in trouble and when we are in fear and to acknowledge our inability to take care of what we need to. Then in the same verses, we see that David Verse 4, sought the Lord, and the Lord heard. That's step two. In the moment of crisis, David found that his own resources were not enough. He's been living by his wits and wilds, but in the moment of crisis, David turns from self-reliance to reliance upon God. And God responded to David's plea. In verse 4, David said that God answered and delivered And we see in verse 6, God heard and saved David. So God responded to David's prayer for help. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here. The promise of prayer is not that God will immediately change every difficulty in your life as soon as you ask him. But he will preserve you for as long as he has work for you to do. And then finally, in step 4, Verse 5, David says, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Perhaps peculiar language, but we see similar language in other parts in Scripture. So, for instance, when Moses has been with David at the mountaintop and Moses comes back down, you remember that his face is radiant to the point that people cannot look at Moses because Moses has seen God at work. We have a similar passage in Isaiah where a mother's face is described as radiant when she catches sight of her children. 
So David says his face and our faces, our entire physical countenance can be changed when we see God at work in our lives. And then David says this, which is our theme verse this morning. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So first, taste and see, David says. David knew that God was more than an idea, more than a philosophy. In the most literal sense, David compares God to really good food. That's because God is to be experienced. He's to be sensed and indulged in. And David goes on to say that God is his refuge. What does it mean to have a refuge? Well, most commonly, we might think of refuge as a safe place to hide in time of a storm. I think that it looks like this. You may know that when I get the opportunity to speak here at Green Tree, I like to serve as a visual sommelier. I don't pair food and wine. I, don't, I love food and wine, but I don't have that skill. But what I like to do is to be able to pair a good scripture with a good image. So I love this photograph. This is a lighthouse off the coast of France, across the English Channel from Great Britain, at a place called Finisterre. Now, I'm going to set Franco-American relationships back 20 years by my pronunciations this morning, so you'll, if you know French, you'll just have to, but you'll have to forgive me, but Fini is the end, right? And Terra is the world or the earth. So this place is at the very end of the world, and there are huge storms here, There have been many shipwrecks over the centuries, and hence there are a good number of lighthouses. The keeper of this particular lighthouse was a man named Theodore Malgorn. And you can see him in the front of this picture. He looks very casual, right? Like he's just stepped out onto the catwalk for a breath of fresh air. But in reality, he was feeling anything but casual. The lighthouse and the keeper had been through a terrible storm the night before, which had bashed the lighthouse with brutal force. Huge waves had come through the windows of the lower levels, and the keeper's usual living quarters were absolutely washed away. The waves washed away the bed, the television, the chairs, even the coffee maker, and the keeper, Malgorn, had therefore gone up into the highest place in the lighthouse, which is called the lantern room, to weather the storm. That night, he had radioed for evacuation from the lighthouse, and in the morning, he heard a helicopter, and he stepped out on the assumption that the helicopter must be his rescuers. But the helicopter was there for a very different purpose. There was a photographer named Jean Guichard who was taking pictures of lighthouses, And the occasion was that the lighthouses were going to be automated and they were going to take all of the lighthouse keepers off of the lighthouses. And Guichard wanted to get photos before that transition took place. So Guichard pulled up in in the helicopter and seeing the drama that was unfolding below, Guichard quickly shot off a series of seven images that looked together like this. Isn't that amazing? 
The lighthouse keeper, Mal Gorn, was initially oblivious to the wave coming. Didn't know it was there, but he saw it in time to step back inside, slam the door shut before the wave could engulf him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, this morning is refuge. You will be pleased to know that Mal Gorn's refuge in the lighthouse kept him safe until he could be rescued. So as we look at this, I want you to see a couple things. Perhaps we could run it just a minute more. So doesn't it look like there is a malevolent hand that's actually a wave that's trying to grab him? And look how coolly he just steps back into the lighthouse. I hope you know that this man, I hope you, hope you observed that this was a Presbyterian lighthouse keeper. <laughs> and it was not a Baptist lighthouse keeper. And we know that because he was sprinkled but not dunked. <laughs> Theological humor on Sunday morning. So, the pictures show us that our situation can change dramatically in just a matter of an instant. And you must know how and where to find your refuge that will be sufficient for the task. So, in advance of the need, you should know what is your refuge and how to get to this refuge. So, how do I do this? We'll wait till the end, but I think there's a very good question. If you were persuaded that God should be your refuge, what would you do? And we'll talk about that very practical question as we draw to an, the end of our time together. So, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is the primary message of Psalm 34. David wants us to know that God is our refuge in the midst of troubles. Now that may be easy for many of us to say, but often people who are in the midst of trouble find it hard to trust God as refuge. Some years ago I read a book that is called Disappointment with God. It's by a man named Philip Yancey. Doesn't that look like a 1980s book cover? It is. Yancey wrote about people who have a faith, who had a faith and who experienced troubles and were struggling. So there was the mother who had a child born with spina bifida, a severe birth defect. There was the believer who prayed to be freed from same-sex attraction but without relief. There was the seminary student who wanted to dedicate his life to God but seemed to find his path forward blocked at every turn. And there were other believers who did not face crisis but just could not shake depression. And each of these people who talked to Yancey and other discouraged believers grappled internally with three questions that are rarely voiced aloud. So here are the three questions asked by those in the midst of troubles. First, is God hidden? Secondly, is God silent? Third, is God unfair? Yancey had to empathize with his friends who were troubled that God often does not explain himself to those who are in suffering. And God does not individually address these hard questions with those who are in the midst of trouble. But some 3,000 years ago, David addressed these three urgent questions that are asked by both ancient and contemporary people. And so at the end of Psalm 34, David wrote a seven-verse sermon on the character of God. Keep those three questions in mind as we read Psalm 34 together. David says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil 
to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the broken heart and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. So in this section of Psalm 34, David addresses the three questions. Is God hidden? Is God silent? Is God unfair? Do you hear here what God what David says that the people of God receive from God. In verse 15, we read that his eyes are on us and his ears are attentive to us. In verse 17, we read that God hears and delivers. Verse 18 says God is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed. According to verses 20 and 22, God protects and he rescues and he will not condemn David tells us that God is not hidden, God is not silent. And then David speaks to the question of unfairness. In contrast to the righteous, the evil find that the Lord is against them and their names will be blotted out, verse 16. They will be slain by evil and they will be condemned, verse 22. So David answers question three of the suffering, God is fair. Here is the final Scorecard for the righteous on the left. The God, the Lord sees and hears us. He delivers us. He's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed. He protects, he rescues, he will not condemn. But for the evil, for the wicked, the Lord is against them. Their names will be blotted out. They will be slain by evil. They will be condemned. Now, how can we know that these things are true? Is this just David's opinion? David tells us something more that I think should be an encouragement and an assurance to us. There is the psalm, a sentence in the psalm that we just read that is quoted in the New Testament. Did you spot it? It's verses 19 and 20. David writes there, The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now on its face, this looks to me like a very odd thing for David to write. There are two possible views of what this verse means. The first view is strictly Old Testament. And in this view, the statements made about the righteous person having many troubles and being delivered, those are statements about the relatively righteous believers in Israel and perhaps relatively righteous people today. David says that God's people experience many troubles, which is a realistic view of the world, but God delivers. And then he adds this rather peculiar statement, all of our bones will be protected. Not one of our bones will be broken. Anybody here ever had a broken bone? Apparently, you're not very righteous people. (laughs) There is a second view. And this is the view of this verse in the gospel 
of John, John 19.26. John says that David wrote this sentence about the Messiah, and in particular about his crucifixion. In this view, the righteous person in the psalm is the Messiah, Jesus, the completely righteous one. And he endured many troubles, which is certainly true. Not one of his bones was broken. When John writes of the crucifixion, he says that as Jesus was on the cross, the sun began to set. Now, the next day was a Jewish holiday. It was called the Day of Preparation, on which preparations were made for Passover. And by tradition, the observance of the religious holiday demanded that the executions be completed and the bodies be down by sunset. So the order was given to break the legs of the three crucified men, Jesus and the crucified men on either side, as a means to hasten death. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he had already died of shock and asphyxiation. So John says that in fulfillment of the prophecy of this psalm, neither Jesus' legs nor any other of his bones were broken. So if John had it right, this sentence in Psalm 34 is about Jesus and the cross. So we have to ask, does the cross help us to know that God is our refuge? Does the cross help us to give thanks in the midst of trouble? And the answer is yes and yes. And this is worthy of so much more discussion than we can do this morning, so I'm, you're going to have to listen quick because I'm going to do this in six sentences. So how does the cross line up with, being, with having a refuge? The cross first tells us that even though God may not answer every question that we have as suffering people, there is nothing that God has allowed us to experience that God did not experience himself. God has not stood far off from us. He experienced life as we experience it here with its many troubles and its unfairness. God is not hidden. He is not silent. And he lived in the unfairness of this world. And by the cross, God proved that he can be trusted as your refuge in the midst of troubles. By the cross, God gave us refuge from our worst troubles. He gave us refuge from sin and death. And he gave, if he gave us refuge from sin and death, if he loved us enough to go to the cross, how much more can he be trusted to give us refuge from the troubles of this world? By the cross, therefore, God proved that he can be trusted to be your refuge in the midst of troubles. So I want to talk practically for just a moment. I, I said earlier that you should know where your refuge is and how to get there before the need arises. So suppose this morning that you said, I am willing to make God my refuge. I'm in troubles and I, I want to rely on him. How would you do this? So we're going to talk about four things that David told us. This will sound familiar. So what do we do to make God our refuge? To make God my refuge, I need first to acknowledge my troubles my fears, and to know that I am poor and don't have the strength and the resources to deal with my troubles. So I would then next ask God in prayer for refuge. It could be an arrow prayer shot into the air 
but one that truly calls on God for help. And then expect help. Look to God for refuge. I don't mean be passive. So David, when he's in his time of trouble, when he's been identified, he switches tactics. But God offered him that opportunity, and David availed himself of it. So look to God for the opportunity for refuge, and then finally respond with gratitude. You remember David talks about the face of the person who has seen God at work in his life. Some of us came here this morning with not a care in the world, and life is good, but it's still good that you know where to go when the time comes that you need refuge. Some of us this morning do have genuine troubles, and so I'm going to give us a few minutes for anyone who would like to Identify the things that are troubles in your life and to ask God to be your refuge. So, this is a personal question that I'm asking each individual here. Where are you in need of refuge this morning? Some of you will say, things are good. But some of you may need to trust God and this is your invitation to call upon Him as your refuge. So, I'm going to give us a moment of silence. It's going to be awkward. But this is your time to do business with God and perhaps ask him if he would be your refuge in your time of trouble. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have satisfied every need of the human heart and that you strengthen us by your presence through the Spirit, through your Word, and in your sacraments. And so we ask you, please, that we would give thanks even in the midst of troubles. Help us to know that you are our refuge in our times of deepest need. We pray in your name. Amen.